0: Last week we looked at the first eight verses in Revelation, and just as a reminder for you, to remind you of, I think there's four things I think that are important to look at, so we we have them fresh in our mind going forward, and number one, that this is an unveiling. This book, the word Revelation, it means apocalypso, it means unveiling, and there's something very, very specific that's being unveiled, or someone that's being unveiled. And as we read in the very first verse, it's the revelation or the unveiling or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. So what we see here is Jesus is the person. The work of Jesus is being unveiled. Who Jesus is is the one that's being unveiled in this. I said it last time. It's not a mystery. It's not really meant to confuse us. It's not meant to take us by surprise. It's not meant to scare us. It's meant to show us more of who Jesus is. That's number one. Number two, there's a blessing written into this book. It's the only book of the Bible that has a blessing in the beginning of it that says, listen, if you read this book, if you hear this book, and if you live this book, and you're obedient to this book, you'll be blessed by it. So there's a pre, God has laid out a blessing that says, here you guys go. You want to be blessed by God? Here's a great place to start, the book of Revelation. That's why we're studying it. Well, Rob, not, not, a lot of pastors don't teach the book of Revelation. Well, I don't know why not. It, there's, a, there's a clear blessing here. God says, I'll bless you if you read this book, if you hear this book, and then you live by this book. So we're going to go through it, and we're going to be blessed as we go through it. Not because of me, because God says we'll be blessed. Number three, John brought a greeting. Remember, he brought a greeting, peace, grace, and peace to you. And he brought a greeting from God the Father. God the Son and the Holy Spirit. He brought a, we see a picture of the Trinity there. That was in, uh, in verses 4 and 5. God brings this greeting to them, gr- greetings from the Lord, basically is what he's saying. And number 4, in verse 7, we see a picture or a promise of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see a promise that Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm coming again. I'll be coming. with. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and the tribes of every earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. And we talked about how that's that's the promise. Jesus says, I'm coming back. I'll be back for this. So we take these four things into account as we move forward into verse 9 this morning. And here we start out in verse 9 with this. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of of Jesus Christ. Again, John identifies himself as the author of this book. This is the Apostle John, by the way. This is the one that wrote the Gospel of John, wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. This is John the Apostle, and he's writing this book. But he tells us something about himself that I think is huge. He calls himself, he relates to the readers of the book in a very specific way. John relates to those that are receiving the book uh, very, very specifically. Number one, he says Your brother. I'm your brother. That's a family member. We're like family. I'm writing to you as a family member. Now, I know at this point in John's life, he was old. He was believed to be in his 90s. 90s in this point that he's writing this book. He's the only apostle still alive. All the others have been martyred for their faith. They tried to. They tried to kill John. Church, uh, Eusebius, an early church father, tells us that they... uh, emperor, uh, I forgot his name. No, it wasn't. It was right after Nero. Who came after Nero? Uh, uh, Domitian, is it Domitian? Domitian, that's it. Sorry. Domitian, emperor Domitian, Eusebius tells us that emperor Domitian came right after Nero tried to, uh, tried to boil John in hot oil, literally boiled a pot of oil, tried to put him in it. He didn't die. And when he didn't die, that's the reason he was sent to Patmos. What do you do with the guy that you can't kill? You exile him. You exile him. So John's writing back to these seven churches. We learned that last week. The the letter is to these seven specific churches. John's writing back, and he could be writing back with a little bit of arrogance in his voice. He could be writing back saying, listen, I know what I'm talking about. I'm the last apostle alive. I've written the gospel of John. At this point, it's controversial whether or not he'd written 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Some think it came after the book of Revelation. But I'm the last guy. You guys have to listen to what I'm saying. But that's not the heart that John is writing from. John's writing from a heart of humility. He says very clearly, I, John, your brother. I'm your brother. You and I are on the same page. I'm not higher than you. John's saying, We're brothers and sisters in the Lord. We're, we're together in this. We're working out God's plan together. I'm not higher than you. But he also says, He also relates to them in this way. He says, I'm a companion in tribulation. We're, we're, we're companions. We're friends. We're enduring. We're enduring the same type of tribulation. And that word gets thrown around a lot, tribulation. Well, what does that mean? Well, in that day, the tribulation was serious. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians were being burned at the stake. That's not like today somebody's going to make fun of you for saying the name of Jesus at work. The tribulation in that day was serious. When John says, I'm your fellow companion." I'm your brother, I'm your companion in tribulation. I am walking alongside of you. And as a matter of fact, I'm enduring tribulation by being on this island. The only reason I'm not dead is because they couldn't kill me. But the people that are receiving this, they're getting it from a loved one. They're getting it from someone who cares about them. They're not getting it from a dictator. They're not getting it from a prideful person. Do you see the humility in John's voice? I'm your brother. I'm your companion in tribulation. Now the island of Patmos... It was a small rocky island in the Aegean Sea. It was approximately 50 square miles. It was used, as the, used by the Roman government as a place to banish prisoners. It was a prison without walls, if you will. They would send you out there, and that's where you would stay for the rest of your life. Oh, great, I can sit on an island and do nothing. No, no, that's not the case. There were mines there. there specifically, they mined uh, marble uh, quarries, marble quarries, and you had to work hard in the mines. You can't get off the island because there's nowhere to go. You can't run away. You're stuck there. Here's John in his 90s, working at the quarry, working in the mines. This is the life that he's living right now. Lord, this isn't what I intended. I'm the last apostle alive. But notice his heart as he writes back. I'm your brothers. I'm your companion in tribulation. I'm your companion in the kingdom, he says. That's an encouraging word for them. I'm, a, I'm your companion in the kingdom, that means not this kingdom, it's a spiritual kingdom. I'm, in your comp- I'm your companion, I'm your friend, I'm your co-labor in the kingdom to come. The kingdom of the Lord is what he's saying. In other words, He's put, let me put it to you in plain English, it's going to get a lot better than it is right now. It's going to get a lot better than it is right now. I know it's hard, I know the persecution, I know your friends and your loved ones and your family and your brothers and sisters in Christ are being martyred for their faith. I understand they're being burned at the stake. I understand you can't even go out in public and talk about your faith. I understand. John says it's going to get better. There's a kingdom coming, and I'm a companion in that kingdom. I'm co-laboring with you in your suffering. I'm a companion in your kingdom. It's going to get better. John is reminding them that there is more than this world. There's more to it. There's more to what this... It doesn't end in this world. There's something coming that's better. Don't we need to be reminded of that? Sometimes life... Life is hard. And sometimes it throws you some some nasty things. Sometimes it throws you some hard things. Sometimes it throws you some difficult things. Keep the perspective that you're only here temporarily. You're going to get through it. Someday you're going to be with the Lord if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And we'll see that spelled out clearly by the end of the book of Revelation. But we need to keep the eternal perspective that says, you know what? It is hard. At 90 years old, John's in the quarry, quarrying marble. No power tools available to him. What do you think he was using? A hammer, a chisel, however they quarry it, I don't know. But here he is serving the Lord because, oh, one more thing. He also says says this, I'm your companion in the patience of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says, I'm your companion. Brother, I'm your companion in tribulation, and we can say your companion in the kingdom, and I'm also your companion in the patience of Jesus Christ. The word for patience means perseverance or endurance. I'm your companion in endurance. I'm your companion in perseverance. In other words, John is saying, keep going. He's reminding them to persevere and to endure during these difficult times. The patience in Jesus Christ is to endure and persevere until Jesus returns. We need to be reminded of that too, don't we? Sometimes when life gets hard, you need somebody to say, keep going. Don't give up. Paul would liken it to a race. You're running a race. Partway through the race, you get tired and you want to quit. No, keep going. Persevere. Continue on in the faith. But if anybody could give up, it would be John, wouldn't it? All this I've done for you, Lord. I've wrote a couple of books. A couple of wrote a letter. And here I am, out on this miserable island by myself. not out here miserably. Don't like work. Don't like this work. I'm old. I should be retired. Collecting social security. Come on, Lord. Why is that? That's not as hard at all. It's in this difficult place that he's going to receive the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's in this difficult place that he will have Jesus Christ revealed to him in a way that he has never seen before. It's in this difficult place that he is going to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ in a different way than he knew him on earth when he was walking with him every day. Sometimes we have to go through difficulty to have that happen. Sometimes it's, in the, it's on your island of Patmos. It's in your, in your difficult season where Jesus will be revealed to you in a way that you have never seen him before. That's where we grow. That's where we, we really grow in our faith that way. Because it's something we've never seen before. Now, I also want to mention, I think this is important, John's attitude in ministry. Again, it's humble. It's humility. He's not telling them, you have to listen to me. He's just explaining to them what's going on. He's just encouraging them. he con- he's, What does he say? Endure. Continue on. I'm a, there's another kingdom coming. It's okay. We're going through this together. We're going to be fine. Keep your focus on Jesus. That's how you encourage somebody going through a difficult time, right there. How do I tell somebody? I I run across somebody going through a hard time. What do I tell them? Those four things. Same thing John's telling them. Those those four things that we see right there. Hey, I'm your brother. I'm with you in this. I'm your companion in tribulation. I'm your companion in the kingdom to come. And I'm your companion in the patience of Jesus Christ. It's a great way to encourage somebody. That's not the philosophy the world would say to encourage somebody. But that's what the Bible, that's what John's doing. Remember, his, his brothers that he's writing to are being killed. This is serious tribulation going on. This is not just, you know, they took away my church. or They're dying for their faith. Family, loved ones, on the stake. If you'll renounce Christ, we'll set you free. No, he never denied me, so I won't deny him. There they go, burned to death. That's what's going on in that day. Caesar Nero, who was before, used to like to watch Christians Burn. That's what he was doing for entertainment. So when we say tribulation, we're not talking just, oh, I had a bad day at the office. Oh, I cut my finger today. Oh, no, we're talking about loved ones being lost. And there's part of you that says, just say no. Just say you don't believe and you can go free. And they're saying, no. No, I'll die for my Lord. I'll die for my faith. And they do. Now, why was John on Patmos? Why was he there? He tells us really clearly I was there, was on the island that is called Patmos. Why? Number one, for the word of God. I'm there for the word of God. And number two, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I'm there because I've been teaching the word of God. I'm there because I've been testifying of Jesus Christ. That's why he's there. What landed you there, John? Why, how, did, how did you find yourself in such a precarious situation? Because I've been living for the Lord. Because I've been testifying of God. I've been testifying of Jesus. And I don't care John would say, I don't care where I end up. I will not renounce my Lord. I will not renounce my Savior. And if I end up on Patmos working in a quarry in my 90s, so be it. And that's where he is. That's where we find him. Now, look at verse 10. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. John says, "I was in the spirit on the Lord's day." I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. What does that mean? What does it mean? Well, it could mean two things. The first thing it could mean, he's praying on Sunday. He's, in, he's praying on Sunday. The Lord's Day, Could that, that could be translated to mean Sunday. The day the early church met was referred to as the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. That would be the day that they met. Acts refers to believers meeting on the first day of the week for communion. That's in Acts chapter 20. First Corinthians chapter 16, Paul refers to the early church meeting on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday. Would be Sunday. That's where it comes from. So when when, when somebody tells you, no, Constantine started that and, and that's why we meet on Sundays. No, we meet on Sundays because the early church met on Sundays. Because they were still very much Jewish. Saturday was their Sabbath day, Sundays when they got together. They were doing both at this for, for a while until the persecution began. That's what happened. But here's John on the, on the, on, in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The second thing that could mean, the second thing, and I think this is probably more likely, could be said this way, I was in the Spirit and taken unto the day of the Lord. You see, when we see that word day of the Lord in the scriptures, oftentimes it doesn't refer to a specific day. It refers to a period of time. It refers to specifically this book of Revelation. It's the day of the Lord. It's it's the time of the Lord. It's the time where, where this will all begin. It's the day of the Lord. So what he could be referring to is he's taken in the spirit to the day of the Lord, which refers to a time period and not a specific day. It would be something similar that happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. As they, were, they, were, they, they witnessed the, the presence and the glory of Jesus, but they witnessed who? Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. So this could be saying, in other words, what they could be saying is John is saying, I was transported. I was moved ahead in time to the day of the Lord. I went to see the things that are coming. That's what he's going to write down. That's why it's called a revelation. I'm going to reveal to you, write down these things that you're seeing. So it's possible, and I think it's more probable, that John has actually physically moved, moved ahead to the day of the Lord, to this time frame that he's seeing. Well, Rob, I thought Revelation was a bunch of visions. I personally think he saw it personally. I think he was there. I think when he goes to heaven, we'll see it in, in chapter 3 and 4, he goes to heaven. He's actually taken up there, and he's looking down and watching what's unfolding on the earth. I don't think it's a vision of what's to come. I think he's transported ahead and moving and seeing this is what is going to come. So here's what we see. John hears this. He tells us where he is. He's in the spirit on the day of the Lord. And he also, he hears a voice. He hears a voice. And the voice says this. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the First, and the Last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. Now, the voice, we're told, is loud and like a trumpet. It's loud and like a trumpet. It's not the same voice that Jesus had when he was on earth. So John would not have recognized the voice as being Jesus, but we've heard that before. We heard that up in verse eight, as we come as we studied last week in verse eight, we saw that Jesus would say, "I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end." So he, we would already have that established. But this is a different voice. This voice is loud and it's trumpeting. It's, it's that's, that's how John describes it. And we have to understand, as John describes these things, he's limited to what he knows. He's limited to what he's seen and what he's experienced in life. John knows what a trumpet is. He knows the sound, the loud piercings. You know know how loud a trumpet can be? I played the trumpet badly, really badly. I was in the band at school for like half a year, and they gave me that little thing to put in the end of it because they didn't really want to hear it come out. It's loud. It can be... If there's a bad trumpet player, you're like, oh, no, just stop. Please. But John says, listen, it was loud, it was piercing, it, and, and he recognizes the title there. He may not have recognized the voice, but he, when he hears, I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, the, I know who that is, John's saying. That's Jesus. That, I know who that is. I know who's talking to me. I, know where that vo- I don't know the voice, but I know the person that is described that way. That's, that's what he's saying here. So, here's what he, here's what he gets. The voice says to him, I want you to do this. What you see, I want you to write in a book. John, what you're about to see, what you're seeing, I want you to write it down. Aren't you glad he did? You ever been disobedient to what the Lord tells you? Yeah. He didn't. He wasn't. He wrote it down. And we're going to study it for the next several weeks. Write it down. And I want you to send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And he lists the seven churches there. But here's what we need to know about these seven churches. These were seven physical churches that existed in what's, what was known as Asia Minor, the Roman provenance of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. If you were to get a map of Turkey, that would, be, that would be where it is. So, And they kind of made an elliptical pattern there. So they made, There were seven churches in an elliptical pattern. Um, and these were physical churches. They were circularly arranged, and it was a good way for them to get this information out. It was a good, there was a hub there for the whole region could then get this information out. So it was, he was speaking of seven churches. But we mentioned last week, seven, the number seven has some significance, doesn't it? The number seven, what does the number seven mean? It means completion. It does. It means completion. It's completion or fulfillment. Sometimes you've ever heard anybody say the number seven is the number of God. That's not true. That's not true. The number of seven means completion or fulfillment. And the reason that's not true, because when you get into chapter 13 and you see the beast coming out, he's got seven heads on him. It has nothing to do with God. But it does have to do with completion or fulfillment. That's what the number seven has. So here's what we see. is we see these seven churches, there's seven physical churches. And what John's going to address, or what Jesus is really the one that's going to address, he's going to identify and address some issues or problems with these churches that are going on in these churches specifically, these seven churches. Now, here's the thing. The same problems occur in the churches today. So when we look at these seven churches, we don't get to go, ha-ha, look what you guys are doing, doing wrong. Look, you guys are really messing it up because it's the same problems, it's the same issues, the same correction that he could apply to churches all over the world today. It's the same thing. But these seven churches also represent a completeness or a fulfillment, like I said, and they're going to show us a picture or a fulfillment of, of church history. Church history. What do you mean by that? Well, from the early church to the modern day church, we're going to see time periods in history that are defined by these churches. You're going to see the Roman church. You're going to see the Protestant Reformation. You're going to see these periods of church history as we go through them one at a time. I'll point them out to you. And when you're done, you're going to be like, wow, God just really showed us what the... Remember, this is written beforehand. This is written in about 95 A.D., God's going to show us the pattern of church history before it unfolds. You go, wow, that's pretty cool. Is he right? He's right on. He's right on because the things that these churches struggle with at these specific times are the exact same things the church as a whole will struggle with at that period in history. But it goes even deeper than that. Because the things that these churches are identified with, the things that we'll call them their their issues or their problem areas, and, and some of them are doing a lot of good things as well. But as he points out their problems and their issues, they also can look at us personally. Because as we see the problems in the churches, we're going to be forced to look in at our life and go, wow, that could be me. That could be me. I'm a representation of the church. I'm a part of the church. So as we study each of these seven churches, you're going to see yourself in there. You'll see yourself in there. You'll see churches that you've been to. You'll see this church. You'll see other churches. And you'll also see the period of church history. Rob, that's pretty cool. All in one book? Yeah. All in one book. It's going to be amazing as we watch it unfold. It's going to be absolutely incredible. Now, John is hearing this voice. You can imagine it sounds like a trumpet. It's loud. He's recognizing it. What's he going to do next? He's going to turn to see. He's. he What's he expecting? It's Jesus. It's, I haven't seen him in so long. You know, John was a young man when, when Jesus w- was ascended back to heaven. It's Jesus. I know it's him. He turns. Let's look what it says in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with the garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were like wool as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, and if refined in a fir- as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth when a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. As John turns to see Jesus, as he turns to see him, I believe that he was excited to see him. I believe that he knew who he was turning to see. But he didn't recognize his voice because it sounded different than it did the last time he heard him. But he recognized his title. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, and the beginning and the end. As John turns to see, what's the first thing that he saw? What's the first thing that he sees? Seven golden lampstands. See, Rob, that's why I don't like Revelation. You start with the lampstands and all this stuff, and I just don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me, right? Well, you got to keep reading. Let's jump ahead just a little bit. I don't want to leave you stuck. Look down at verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. See, it's not that hard. We know what they are. The lampstands, what do they represent? The seven churches. Which seven? The ones we just read that he's going to write this letter to, this revelation to. He's going to write to the seven churches. Now, here's what I want you to remember kind of draw out of this. These seven churches, who's walking in their midst? Jesus. Jesus is walking in the midst of these seven churches. Has he abandoned them? No, he hasn't abandoned them. There's a picture here. These seven golden lampstands remind us of what in the Old Testament? The light in the tabernacle, the lamp in the tabernacle, was called a menorah. It had seven lamps. It was one lamp stand with seven lamps on it. Okay, so you had one lamp stand that came up the middle, and then three branches on either side would be like the menorah. But here, there's a little bit different. Here, it's seven individual lamp stands. There's seven individual lamp stands. Now, in the tabernacle, who was responsible for taking care of the lamp, the menorah, the priest? The priest would. And what did they have to do to take care of the menorah? They would have to go in and put oil in the lamp. Oil is always a picture of the Holy Spirit. They would have to go in and trim the wicks. They would have to go in and clean the soot off. They would have to go in and make sure everything's working properly, right? This is is what Jesus is doing amongst the lampstands. The lampstands represent the church. Jesus is the high priest. And now as he writes these seven letters, he's sort of tuning up, if you will, He's sort of correcting, he's addressing some issues with the lampstand. Now, let me, to, let me say this to you. Can a lampstand produce light? No, a lampstand doesn't produce light. What produces light? The lamp that goes on top of the lampstand. The lampstand is to elevate the light. Jesus said, I am the light. I am the light of the world. The church's job is not to produce light. The church's job is to elevate Christ. So here's this beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ walking among the churches with problems, mind you. Because we think there's a perfect church out there, and there's not. Is there a perfect church? We are. We're the only ones. Why are you laughing? No, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. Seriously. If you think this is the perfect church, just keep on going by. Don't ever go back again because you'll ruin it for sure. No. Here's the picture of the Lord walking amongst the churches. He's walking amongst the lampstands. And this is what John sees. And it's, it's easily relatable to the high priest. What's he doing? He's going to write in these letters. It's almost as if he's adding some Holy Spirit, adding some oil, trimming some wicks, polishing. Whatever needs to be done, he's preparing them. He's getting them ready. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the Lord? That's what he's doing for us. And if you're part of the church, this includes you. This includes you. So that's the first thing John sees is these seven golden lampstands. Now, he also, John goes on to write here ten characteristics describing the glorified Jesus. John's going to write ten things to, you, to tell you what Jesus looks like. It's the only place in the scripture where, where a description of Jesus is given, with the exception of Isaiah. Isaiah gives a description of him on this earth before he comes as being lowly and meek. But this is the only place where you're going to see what Jesus looks like. Only place in the Bible. Don't miss it because of its uh, poetic feel. Now, the first thing he says, he says he's like the Son of Man. He's like the Son of Man. That's what Daniel said in chapter 7. Daniel said it this way, I was watching in the night visions and behold... One like the Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and that's God, the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall never be destroyed. That's the kingdom John was talking about. That's the kingdom I'm co laboring with you in. He's like the Son of Man. Jesus also used this title to describe himself. In the book of Matthew, he would refer to himself often as the son of man. You see, when we read it in the book of Matthew, we think, oh, he's like relating to us. He's like, it's like a a lowly thing. It's like, no, he wasn't referring to lowly. He was, I am the son of man. I am the one that Daniel spoke about. I'm the one that's going to have the kingdom that never goes away. That is who I am. Think about that for a minute. His kingdom will never end. Has there been a kingdom on this earth that's last forever? Never. They've all fallen. Every single kingdom, every single king, is, at some point, they've only lasted a certain amount of, number of years. They've all fallen, every country. Nothing has lasted. He says, my kingdom will last forever. My, I'm the, I, my kingdom will not fail. That's who I am. I'm the son of man. Number two, he says, or we read, John says, I'm seeing Jesus there, and he's clothed with a garment of down to his feet, he's wearing a long flowing garment. Well, what does that mean, Rob? Well, that's a garment that a priest would wear. It's a garment that a priest would wear. It's a garment that a judge would wear. It's speaking of, of prominence. It's speaking of the fact that Jesus is our high priest. He's the one walking amongst the lampstands. We're also told in the scriptures he's interceding on our behalf. The Lord is praying for you. Jesus prays for you. He's interceding with God the Father on our behalf. And like I said, it's also a garment that a judge would wear. As a judge, we're told that he'll judge the whole earth. It's a, it's a garment of royalty. It's a garment a king would wear. There's, there's just, it's, it's, just, it's a beautiful picture. He's our, our king. He's our priest. He's, our, he's the judge. He, it, it's everything. It's describing who he is. And on this garment, number three, girded about his chest, is a golden band. And the band, the gold, represents power, authority, and majesty. In Exodus chapter 39, it says that there were golden threads in the band that went around the, 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 the sash or the, or the chest of the high priest. Not Jesus. Jesus is solid gold. Not just a little bit of gold. His majesty is way above what the high priest would have been. His glory is way above that. Jesus' bands had more than a few golden threads. It was solid gold. How much greater is the eternal heavenly priesthood of Jesus? Number four. John says his head and his hair were like wool, as white as snow. I like this one, because I'm turning that way. The white hair speaks of old age. In some cultures, it's seen as wisdom. It's seen as somebody who's wise, who's been around. And In in a lot of cultures around the world, if somebody has gray head or white hair, they're they're seen as a very wise person. You guys remember that, okay? See? I'm going that way. I'm heading that direction. The phrase white as snow also emphasizes the purity of Jesus. So we have this picture, and Jesus is the light, and shining off a bright light is white. So John sees this white hair. He sees his face as white as snow. He sees the purity of Jesus Christ. He sees this picture of who he is, of pure, of being pure. And then it says in number five, his eyes are like a flame of fire. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Do you know that? Nothing is hidden from his sight. He knows what you think. He knows what you do. You can't hide it from him. And he still loves you. He still loves you. Nothing is hidden from his sight. His eyes are like a flame of fire. We're told in 2 uh, in Chronicles, the eyes of the Lord uh, run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself, to show himself strong. On behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. He's looking to show himself strong in you. He's looking to show himself who he is through you. And then we know that fire always represents what in the Bible? Judgment. Fire represents judgment. He sees everything. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Jesus' eyes displayed the fire of searching and penetrating judgment. When you come into the presence of the Lord, you will know that he knows everything about you. You see, right now you have a lot of secrets, don't you? We all have secrets. We have things that you wouldn't, did anybody not have any secrets? You all, you'll have things that I wouldn't do. All right, let's tell a secret. Who wants to tell me one of their secrets? No, I'm just kidding. But could you imagine if I knew all your secrets? If I knew everything you thought, if I knew everything you did, if, I, if just me, if I knew it. Jesus does. He does. He knows all of it. And you think Google keeps a history of what you look at. Jesus got it all. You know, he keeps everything. Nothing. Now, it says his feet, number six, his feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. Brass or bronze also represent judgment. Remember back in the tabernacle when they would make their sin offering, it would be sacrificed on the brazen altar or the bronze altar. The utensils on that altar were bronze. It represents judgment. It's God's judging this animal for the sin of the people. That's what it represented. That's what the brass or the bronze represents. It's also a strong metal. It was the strongest metal known in the ancient world. Adam Clark said this way. He said, it's an emblem of his stability and permanence. Brass being considered the most durable of all metallic substances or compounds. It's his permanence. It's his stability. Feet of brass don't move. They're stuck. They can stand. That's what we're seeing. The Lord, a Lord that is permanent. It's not temporary. He's standing. Number seven, his voice is the sound of many waters. Think of the greatest waterfall you've ever been to. What did, it, what did it sound? If, if you went to a big enough one, you can hardly talk standing next to it. It's just, it's, it's overwhelming, the sound. And that, that's what he's saying his voice is like. It's, it's overwhelming. It's like, it's a sound of waters. Number eight, he had in his hand seven stars. Well, there you go, Rob. That's why I don't understand. What are the seven stars? Well, I read it in verse 20. Remember, they showed us what the seven stars are. He had in his hand seven stars. Verse 20 tells us the seven stars Speak of the angels or messengers to the seven churches. You see, the word angel also means messenger. Some people believe that there was an, there's, a, there's a guardian angel assigned to every church. And every church has their own guardian angel. And this letter is written to them. I, 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 okay, but I think it's more likely the messenger. I think this letter is being written to the leadership, to the pastor, to the leader in these seven churches. That It's going to them because they're the ones that are going to make the changes in the churches. They're the ones that are going to have the opportunity to respond to what the Lord's saying. So when we see angel, it could be messenger. It's a perfectly acceptable translation to do either way, angel or messenger. So here we see that he's got in his hand the seven stars. And verse 20 tells us these seven stars speak to these messengers. Now notice where they're at. They're in the hand of the Lord. The churches. Because we're going to have a tendency to make fun of some of these churches. Because they're doing some silly things. And and as I I describe to you what they're doing, you're going to think of modern day churches that are doing the exact same things. But I want you to notice where these churches are. They're in the hands of the Lord. He hasn't thrown them in the garbage can. He hasn't walked away from them. He hasn't turned them down and said, I don't want anything to do with you guys anymore. They're still in his hand. He's walking in the midst of the lampstands. He's got the leaders of these churches, that's the seven stars, in his hand. He says, I got something I want to talk to you about. I got something I want to show you that's going on in your church. There's something that I need to tell you about. Will we have that same heart when it comes to the Lord ministering to us? Will you go before the Lord when you open your Bible or when you do your devotions or when you decide to read? And will you say, Lord, will you show me what I need to work on? Will you show me what's going on in my life? Will you you write a letter to me? Can you imagine getting a letter from Jesus? All right, Rob, here's what I saw this week. Whoa, that's what it's going to be like as we go through these seven churches because you're going to see your own personal life revealed in there as well. Now, the ninth thing we see, the ninth description is, out of his mouth when a sharp two-edged sword. This is a heavy sword. It's used to kill and destroy if you're familiar with Hebrews chapter four verse twelve, it's not the same word for sword. That's, a, that's more of a tactical sword. This sword is a judgment sword. Out of his mouth, when a two-edged sword. Now you go. I got this picture of a guy with a sword stick or a pirate with it in his teeth, like crossways or something. That's not the picture. Out of his mouth comes what? Words, words. Out of his mouth comes the words. Sometimes, sometimes. We get confused with the pictures or the symbolism and we don't get full understanding. But what we have to understand, it's the words of Jesus that are sharper than any two-edged sword. Coming out of his mouth is the word of God. That's what's sharper than any two-edged sword. That's what's going to cut you to the heart. That's what's going to change you. It's the word of God. It's why we do everything in this church that we do it the way that we do it. That's why we're putting up a radio station to put out the word of God. We're putting a two-edged sword out over the airwaves so people can be cut to the heart. What do I do then? You repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's that's why we do what we do. John didn't see a sword coming out of his mouth or like a pirate with a knife between his teeth. He recognized it's the word of God that was coming out of his mouth. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, there is no handling this weapon without cutting yourself for it has no back to it. It is all edge. The word of Christ, somehow or other, is all edge. It's the Bible. You see, the Bible can be this historic book that I read and study and learn and put it in my mind, and I learn it, and and it just stays there forever. But it can also be, if I'll let it cut to my heart. It can also show me what I need to change in my life. It'll also show me who Jesus is that allows you to worship. And it'll reveal so much to you about yourself and about God and about life in general if we'll let it do that. But we have to be willing. Number 10, his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. The glory of Jesus is so great, so shining, that it is hard to even look upon him. Jesus has the same glory as in his transfiguration when his face shone like the sun. Picture it. He is the light of the world. There will be no sun in the new Jerusalem. He will be the light. He produces all the light that is needed to live by. He produces it. Charles Spurgeon said this again, and I like it. He says, what do you see in Christ's right hand? The seven stars. Yet how insignificant they appear when you get a sight of his face. They are stars and there are 7 of them but you can see se- but you- but who can see 7 stars or for that matter 70,000 stars when the sun shines in his strength How sweet it is when the Lord himself is so present in a congregation that the preacher whomever he may be is altogether forgotten I pray you dear friends when you go to a place of worship always try to see the Lord's face rather than the stars in his hand. Look at the sun, and you will forget the stars. That was Spurgeon. The picture is this. If I was standing here with stars in my hand, and my face was shining like a sun, would you even see the stars? No. Go outside today after we leave church. Look up. How many stars do you see? None. Why? Because the sun's shining. It's outshining all the stars. Charles Spurgeon said that's the way church should be. Jesus should be the one shining in a body of believers, not the pastor, or the deacons, or the elders, or whoever else it might be. Jesus should be the one shining. People should go there not to see people. He says, you should go to church, not to hear the pastor or see the pastor. You should go to church to see the Lord and to hear the Lord, wherever that might be. That's what he's saying. That's the purpose. That's, that's what we're looking for. Now, everything in this vision speaks of strength, majesty, authority, and Righteousness. Everything, these ten things that we just saw, speaks of so... I mean, we could go on all day about the different things that from the omniscience, from the omnipresence of God, from all these things of the Lord that he's in the midst of doing all this. It's his strength, it's his majesty, it's his righteousness. This is a little different vision of the Lord than what we see painted in paintings today, isn't it? You know, so often we see an effeminate version of Jesus or a girly version or like a nice, lovable, huggable guy. That's, that's not the, that is, that was the suffering servant, but this is who Jesus is right now. Jesus is exalted. He is on the throne. He is waiting to end all this. He is waiting. When we look at these 10 things, and I, I I suggest you go back and you study them again. It's going to, Lord, I want to know you more. Study these things. Ask him to show you what they really mean. Because John, the old friend of Jesus, remember what John calls himself in the book of John? The one that Jesus loved is what he says. The one that Jesus loved. That means we were close. We were tight. He knows me. Look at John's response. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. He didn't go, oh, good buddy. Good to see you again. How you been? How are things going in heaven? What's going on in Cumberland? And what's going on here? And what's going on back at Ephesus? No. John says, I fell dead. I couldn't move. I laid at the feet of Je- dead. If anybody knew Jesus, it was John. He was the one that Jesus loved. He had spent three years with them. He was the only one that witnessed the crucifixion of the apostles. Anybody knew Jesus, it was John. But John had never seen him like this before, or maybe briefly in the Mount of Transfiguration. John had never seen this before. This is who Jesus is. Mighty, righteous, pure, holy, kingly, judge, And he falls at his feet dead. John was overwhelmed by this awesome vision. Even though he was an apostle who knew Jesus on this earth, he was overwhelmed by it. Now, I love Jesus. I love the Lord. Look what he says to him. In verse 17, Jesus replies, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, John. I'm the first and the last. I'm he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. I love that. I love that. He tells him. He laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. He touches him. It's okay, John. Why did he tell John not to be afraid? Because John was afraid, wasn't he? Right? You don't tell somebody not to be afraid if they're not afraid. John's afraid. He's in the presence of the Lord. He's in the presence of the one that knows everything about him. He's in the presence of God. John's afraid. Jesus touches him and says, don't be afraid, John. Don't be afraid. And the second thing is he tells him is, I'm alive. I'm alive. The third thing he tells him is, I have the keys of Hades and death. I have the keys of Hades and death. Well, what does that mean, Rob? He's telling John, I am in control of everything. You see, we have this picture in our mind of Hades or hell, of this like, idea that Satan's got his little layer down there, and he's ruling that, and he's, no, no, that's not the way it goes. Jesus says, I'm in control of everything. I hold the keys to Hades and death. I hold the keys to life and death. I am the one that holds everything in my hands. And John needs to hear that. But then he gives John something to do. Look at verse 19. He says, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. If you miss this verse, you will completely misunderstand Revelation. If you've slept through the whole first part of this message, wake up because now you need to hear it. This is the most important verse of Revelation in explaining how Revelation works because people get confused. I don't know how it works. He just gave you a three-point outline. Jesus just said to John, I want you to write the things you've seen I want you to write the things that are, and I want you to th- write the things which will take place after this. So when we go forward from here, we can look and say, all right, John, there's three points here. John, I want you to write the things which you have seen. We just studied them, chapter 1. That's the things that John saw. That's, that's, he wrote it down in chapter 1. I want you to write the things which are, John. That's going to be chapter 2 and chapter 3. That's to the sev- those seven letters to the seven churches. Those are the things that are. Those are the things that are currently happening. And lastly, I want you to write the things. I want you to write the things that will take place after this. After this. That's going to be chapter four through the rest of the book of Revelation, all the way up to chapter 22. The word after this in Greek is metatata. Meditata. It's kind of a fun word. Meditata. And it means this after these things. After these things. So when we look at the book of Revelation last week, I said we're looking at it from a futuristic perspective. We don't think it's taken place yet. And when you open up, if, if you, when you look at chapter 4, it starts out with meditata, after these things. After these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place meditata, after This or after these things. That's going to be an important verse when we get to studying the rapture of the church. And I will tell you when we get there, and I will show you why I believe that speaks about the rapture of the church and why I believe in a pre tribulation rapture. But here's what we need to remember this book is broken down into three parts the things which John has seen, the things which are, that are currently in existence, which are the seven churches, and the things which will take place after these things. So, so very important. If you miss that verse, you'll get everything confused in the book. because It won't make sense after that. If you don't put it in the proper order, these are the things that he saw. These are the things that are. And these are the things that will take place in the future. We'll be trying to put the things in the future, in the past. We'll be trying to plug them into different places. And it just won't work right. It just won't fit. But as we travel through it together, I will explain to you. I talked about it last week. I'm teaching this from a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial perspective. This is why. After these things means what? There's something prophetic about this book. There's something that has to, that John's going to see something that hasn't happened yet. And we're waiting for these things to happen. And we're still waiting for them to happen because as we study through, you'll see they haven't happened. The temp, there's, no temple being, there's no temple in Jerusalem right now. There's a, there's a mosque sitting on the Temple Mount. There will be a temple someday. We'll see those kinds of things that take place. It's an amazing book. Now, verse 20, we already looked at it. Verse 20... The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars and the angels of the seven churches are in the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. The seven stars represent the messengers or the leaders of the churches. The seven lampstands represent the churches themselves. Anybody got any questions? Let's pray. If you have questions, you can ask me afterwards. Father, you've given this revelation to the Apostle John for us. And Lord, I pray that during this time of study, we would become, or we would know more of who you are. Father, as this revelation unveils you, may it unveil you to us personally. Father, the book is already written, but it's us individually that need to know more of who you are. Would you meet us here as we study, as your word proclaims and bless us? As we look to you, may you have your way in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.